hard-hitting medical truth, cutting through conflict and confusion to the understanding you're searching for. Join Dr. Peter McCullough, world-renowned medical expert and practicing physician for this edition of the McCullough Report. Your life may depend on it. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report, and I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. We have a great show for you this week, and I wanted to uh, kick it off with an interview that I had on the Ingram Angle, uh, Laura Ingram, Fox News. This is national TV, but this time it was with uh, guest host Jesse Waters, and it had to do with uh, what was really a dark statement made by uh, President Joe Biden. And that statement was made uh, around December 20th when he told America that we were in for a winter of disease and death for the unvaccinated. And as a very strong fear-mongering message from the President of the United States uh, at a time when our nation had already had two years of COVID-19 and we need messages of hope and positivity. I want you to hear what my message was for the country. I knew this was coming up in the interview and uh, I'll just let you decide. Let's not forget that Collins, along with Fauci and others, spent the better part of two years dismissing potential treatments to COVID that could have saved many, many lives. In fact, if they truly cared about public health, they'd urge Biden to launch an Operation Warp Speed for his own for therapeutics, instead of doubling down on more of the same policies that clearly aren't working. So why aren't Fauci, Collins, and the rest of the medical bureaucrats pushing for effective therapeutics to fight COVID? Well, my next guest recently went on Joe Rogan's podcast to unveil what he thinks is really going on. Joining me now is Dr. Peter McCullough, an epidemiologist based in Dallas, Texas. So, Doctor, what is going on? Well, what we've seen is uh, a focus on lockdowns, masks, and then a, a really a giant focus on vaccines. And what's been left out is treatment. We know when sick patients are treated early, we reduce the period of infectivity from 14 days down to three or four days. That's what happened in Joe Rogan's case. Joe Rogan got state-of-the-art treatment with nutraceutical supplements, monoclonal antibodies, ivermectin, steroids. He was over with in basically three or four days. And, and Joe reviewed that for, with me. I told him, listen, that's the protocol I drew up for America and for the world last year. Sadly, what's happened is we've actually had a chilling effect on early treatment, a, ch a chilling uh, effect on hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin. Uh, we have not had any featuring of monoclonal antibodies in the national discussion, nor any focus on steroids, anti-inflammatories, high-quality drugs like colchicine shown in the largest clinical trial of COVID-19 to reduce hospitalization death. And now we have new uh, therapies from Merck and from Pfizer that we'll use in treating patients. Patients really when they're sick, they don't want to hear anything about vaccines. And whether they're vaccinated or not, they want early treatment. Yeah, they have the COVID pills. A lot of people like pills better than needles. <laughs> I can count myself as one of those people. So you see now the president's tried to vax his way out of this thing. Now he's trying to test his way out of this thing. Do you think testing your way out of this winter is going to be an effective strategy? 
We have plenty of tests right now. I have patients in my practice getting tests on a daily basis. They're widely available. We just need to make sure the cycle threshold uh, limit is less than 28 following the CDC standards. We have antigen testing, home testing, and I agree with you. I think if we pour more tests into households, we're going to end up with just more asymptomatic false positives. The test should only be used in acutely sick people as a diagnostic aid in making the diagnosis of COVID-19. So this is a guy who hid during the pandemic in his basement. And then he went from the basement to the White House and his mandate fired all the essential workers who were working while he was hiding in his basement. Says he's a Catholic guy and then tells who can go to Christmas with their family or not. Do you think he has any credibility as a messenger left with the American people on COVID-19? We heard the darkest message I think ever Americans have heard before the holidays about a long uh, and deadly uh, winter for the unvaccinated. And I have to tell you, I, my message for America is, is one that's positive. It's joyous. Uh, we've learned so much about COVID-19. Our uh, treatment of COVID-19 is uh, causing large numbers of individuals to avoid the hospital, avoid death, recover, and then have natural immunity. It's a very positive story as we're working our way through the pandemic. Americans have suffered uh, enough. And in my view, they don't need a strong negative message moving into the holidays. That's a great message. And I think everybody should take that to heart, except it's hard to absorb that type of positive message when you have fear mongers on CNN, like this doctor who says he wants to form a task force to attack the unvaxxed. Listen. Anti-science aggression is now probably one of the leading killers of young adults in the United States. What they've got to do is create an interagency task force that brings in Homeland Security, the Commerce Department, the Justice Department. We have to bring in the State Department and really take a hard look at how we dismantle the anti-vaccine, anti-science empire. <laughs> the anti-science empire. You're going to get Homeland Security involved, doctor. You know, all doctors do is we weigh out the risks and benefits. All forms of therapies and vaccines have risks and benefits. And I think those who are proposing the vaccines need to give a fair balanced review. We should have had it on a monthly basis on what are the risks and the benefits of the vaccines? How are they doing? Uh, and to give Americans actually an intelligent choice in terms of whether or not they take a vaccine. But it's exactly that. The choice of a therapy is always belongs to the individual. We cannot have that circle of medical freedom broken by external forces. I couldn't agree more. Thank you so much, Dr. McCullough. You can tell there's a lot of themes there. Uh, the theme of a dark message uh, for the unvaccinated by President Biden all the way to a uh, vaccine-funded researcher uh, who is basically funded by uh, the whole vaccine industry uh, telling Americans on CNN that they should uh, uh, get behind an idea where Homeland Security and the Department of Justice and other uh, agencies actually go after those individuals presenting the science. Uh, so this efforts here on this show are simply presenting the science. Uh, we are not anti-science. In fact, science is a process. I'm a doctor. I'm a scientist. Many of you listening are scientists. And I can tell you my featured guest at this show is clearly a scientist. Uh, we have on the show Dr. Robert Malone, uh, who is an MD. He is a researcher. He contributed greatly to the 
development of messenger RNA vaccines through the course of his work. I introduce him on the back half of the show. So uh, this is a very pro-science uh, program, America Out Loud Talk Radio, The McCullough Report. And I wonder if those individuals uh, stating uh, their goal of uh, going after the anti-science establishment as if there is some type of establishment or collusion or project. I wonder if he means this show, America Out Loud Talk Radio, and I wonder if he means me personally, Dr. Peter McCullough. Uh, I can only imagine. So as we step forward, keep those words in mind and keep this in mind. The other thing you heard on the show is that I had a brief uh, mention of a long interview that I had with legendary podcaster Joe Rogan, and that was a stir. Now, what I told Joe Rogan on the program, uh, and he went from the very beginning about how I got involved in COVID-19 and the tight linkage between the suppression of early treatment of COVID-19 and those same individuals, the same government stakeholders that suppressed uh, critical early treatment to Americans desperate uh, to avoid hospitalization death are the same stakeholders who have been wildly promoting the vaccines uh, and now at this point in time are beyond promoting the vaccines. They are simply forcing the vaccines on individuals who don't want them. That those two are inextricably linked. Suppression of treatment and promotion of vaccines are linked together and one can only conclude that the two from the very beginning were linked and were meant to, in a sense, be part of a program to have the population accept mass vaccination. I think that's what uh, really opened Rogan's eyes, no different than what I told Tucker Carlson now over six months ago on Tucker Carlson Today. Uh, But let's hear a little bit from the Joe Rogan interview. So in your opinion, if your protocol had been established and distributed worldwide, if people had recognized that this is a way to deal with early treatment, you think that the overall number of COVID deaths would have been significantly reduced. I testified in the U.S. Senate November 19, 2020. I told Americans under oath that 50% of the lives at that time could have been saved. We were at about 250,000 deaths based on what I knew. I then testified on March 10, 2021 in the Texas Senate. Sworn testimony. I upped that to 85% of the deaths could have been avoided. We know that because we carried out studies. We did one with Proctor here in Dallas-Fort Worth where we demonstrated that even the early primordial protocols before the monoclonal antibodies when we used drugs in combination were associated with 85% reductions in hospitalizations and deaths compared to fair comparator groups. And for death, we used the Tri-County Area and DFW averages age adjusted. And for hospitalization, we used the Cleveland Clinic calculator, which is a very precise estimate of the risk of hospitalization. Then simultaneously, Derwand and Zelenko showed that from our own New York data, and then Didier Rial showed it from Marseille, France. So we have three different areas showing early multidrug therapy as an outpatient works substantially, and we've had a giant loss of life, a giant number, millions and millions of unnecessary hospitalizations. Uh, and it seemed to me, and I've, said, I've told Tucker Carlson and many others, it seems to me early on there was an, an intentional, very comprehensive suppression of early treatment in order to promote fear, suffering, isolation, hospitalization, and death. And it seemed to be completely organized and intentional in order to create acceptance for and then promote mass vaccination. So you believe this is a premeditated thing that they were doing. So they realized that in order to get people enthusiastic about taking this vaccine, the best way to do that was to not have a protocol for treatment. 
It's not just my idea. Now it's completely laid out by the book by Dr. Pam Popper, the book recently published by Peter Bregan, uh, COVID-19 and the Global Predators, We Are the Prey. I wrote one of the uh, introductions. Dr. Leafly and Dr. Vladimir Lorenko, who's listening, wrote the other introductions. These books are basically nonfiction. They have a thousand citations in the Bregan book showing how it was coordinated and planned. Now Bobby Kennedy has his book out, The Real Anthony Fauci. I'm the most uh, mentioned physician in that book. I can tell you that if you want to find the evidence that Moderna was working on the vaccine before the virus ever emanated out of the lab, if you wanted to find the, the collusions and the operations between the Gates Foundation and Gavi and SEBI and Pfizer and Moderna and the vaccine manufacturers and the Wuhan lab and the National Institutes of Health and Ralph Barrick and University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and how all this was organized. If you want to see the Johns Hopkins planning seminar called the SPARS pandemic in 2017, where they had a symposium, people showed up, they wrote up their symposium findings, they published this. It says it's going to be a coronavirus. It's going to be related to MERS and SARS. It's going to come over here to the United States. It's going to shut down cities and frighten people. There's going to be confusion regarding a drug, hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin. And we're going to utilize all that in order to railroad the population into mass vaccination. It's laid out in the Johns Hopkins SPARS pandemic training seminar. The only thing they got wrong was the year. They said it was going to be 2025. Instead, it landed a few years early. So you can tell that uh, the surprise was building in Rogan's mind about what in the world is going on and how could this have possibly been coordinated and planned. And I mentioned a few books and I wanted to give complete credit. I think the first book I became aware of released on COVID-19, it's brief, but it's a very good read. It really focuses on the Trump administration's response. And that's by Diane Andrews, Dr. Diane Andrews from Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I spent some time on the Diane Andrews show, Black and White, down in Baton Rouge earlier this year. The next paper came from Dr. Pam Popper. Dr. Popper leads uh, a, um, a multidisciplinary integrative health uh, consortium in Columbus, Ohio. Uh, hers is a terrific book about the operations of the COVID-19 pandemic response. And then Peter Bregan, we've had Dr. Bregan on McCullough Report several times. Dr. Peter Bregan, a psychiatrist, he is the author of the very popular book called Talking Back to Prozac. He has his book out, COVID-19 and the Global Predators, We Are the Prey. I wrote one of the introductions, so did Dr. Lee Vliet, also known as Dr. Lee, Lee, Lee for America on America Out Loud platform, and Dr. Vladimir Zelenko, who's one of the original treating doctors for of COVID-19 syndrome in the world. Uh, that book is out uh, widely available on the uh, Kindle platform as well as in print. I, at almost every major public event, I sign books for COVID-19 and the Global Predators, Dr. Bregan's book on his behalf. And then uh, we have uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci, uh, the real Dr. Anthony Fauci by Robert F. Kennedy of the Children's Health Defense, uh, RFK, uh, really exposes Dr. Anthony Fauci for who he is uh, it is a widely uh, cited book. It has now, I think, 2,000 references, and uh, he does uh, mention me many times in the book in my role as a developer of early treatment and then someone who was uh, very fair balanced about vaccine safety and efficacy once it rolled out, and then what happened to me professionally. Uh, many of you know the story uh, where I was walked into a room in January before I had said even a word about the COVID-19 pandemic, and I uh, was uh, summarily released from my job without following due process. Uh, my contract called for a board vote and then a 
presidential vote. On top of that, I was a highly ranked official in a large health system. I was told that my contract was being renewed for no reason. Uh, and then the story went on from there in terms of a separation agreement. And then later on the day, the health system brought out the vaccine mandates. They announced a lawsuit, went to the press uh, that uh, immediately published a, a piece about myself uh, being sued by a major health system for over a million dollars, and then uh, calls to my wife to intentionally frighten her before I was called into court within an hour. That's really just a, a packet of what's happened to me in the last year. 2021 will go down as, a, as a, quite an inflection point in my career. And all of this is summarized. And then uh, the final book to mention is by Dr. Scott Atlas. Scott was on the White House Task Force under the Trump administration, so he was on the inside. He worked with Deborah Burks and Anthony Fauci on a daily basis. And Scott's book deals with uh, uh, the White House and the White House operations. And he does mention kind of a dark cloud coming over the nation. And what struck me in a personal conversation I had with Scott Atlas uh, at a symposium in Columbus, Ohio, I uh, had dinner with him, is that he told me he thought that leaders in the White House and the task force did have uh, good intentions for America. There's nothing nefarious from his point of view. He felt that they were grossly incompetent. Scott told me that he was showing up every day with the data. He was prepared uh, as he should be. All of uh, the doctors in our circles are uh, academic high achievers. We review the data as I do with you on the McCullough Report. And what Scott told me is that he felt that Fauci and Bergs and other officials were grossly incompetent. They showed up with no preparation of the data. They literally didn't know what was going on. They had their talking points with respect to uh, masks, lockdowns, and then mass vaccination, and that was it. And so he feels it's a crisis of incompetence. So quite a confluence of different perspectives out there in these books. Uh, you know, COVID-19 is the biggest, uh, most important uh, news topic, uh, social, cultural, medical of our time. Uh, we can't spend enough time, I think, understanding more about it. We will tell our children about this uh, later on as we move towards the backside of the pandemic. Now, I have a couple news items for you. Uh, I had a special show uh, recently on Omicron, the most recent variant, and uh, the Center for Disease Control does have predictive models, and then they have the actual percentages of the various uh, strains out there. And up until three weeks ago, it was 99% uh, Delta. Now the CDC rapidly predicts we've gone from two and then uh, to a moderate proportion that now to 73% Omicron. That's what's predicted. Many think they've had a second case of COVID-19. And uh, in fact, they've just had a, either a false positive test or it's a persistently positive test. And then we learned in a paper from Chertow and colleagues from the National Institutes of Health recently that uh, the virus actually can be found within human bodies uh, up to 230 days after the initial infection. That's as far as they could look in their samples. And they could actually find replicating virus in multiple tissues, the brain, the heart, uh, uh, throughout the body. So it seems to be that um, because the replication is dependent on the polymerase, it produces the spike protein, nucleocapsid, and envelope protein. We actually have all four primers in play for the polymerase chain reaction test. And it's probably no surprise then that individuals who develop uh, positive tests uh, many months or longer after having COVID-19 
They can present just for asymptomatic testing, or they could present with a, a viral URI. They could be false positively diagnosed as COVID-19, a second case. So I think we have now the explanation of why people think they get second cases of COVID-19. Uh, to this day, there's never been a verified case of COVID-19 occurring in a second or third case. And I mean somebody sick uh, with characteristic signs and symptoms, characteristic laboratories, chest x-ray findings, and we have a PCR on a positive uh, a PCR with a low cycle threshold, less than 28, plus uh, nucleocapsid antigen testing positive, plus limited sequencing uh, positive. And then we see them uh, six months later, let's say, and they have all three tests positive and in fact have the sequencing showing a slightly different sequence. So we know in, indeed they have a second viral infection. That's actually never happened. Never. And our CDC admitted that a few weeks ago under the pressure of a Freedom of Information Act request by lead attorney Adam Siri. Uh, and uh, Aaron Siri basically pressed the uh, CDC director, and they ultimately came out with a statement saying, we've never seen uh, a reinfection with COVID-19 where someone spread it to someone else. That was a huge admission, the CDC being a stakeholder in trying to find reinfection and uh, I'm sure popularizing the idea that someone could get reinfected uh, in order to drive massive vaccination, particularly on those who have already COVID recovered and uh, have a negligible risk of ever having serious illness again. So that's where we are with that topic. And I have one final paper I wanted to update you on. The title of this paper is COVID-19 Vaccination and Age Stratified All-Cause Mortality Risk and is published in preprint on ResearchGate. And the uh, investigators are uh, uh, Spiro P. Uh, Pantazatos and Hervé Seligman from the Molecular Imaging and Neuropathology Area, New York State Psychiatric Institute, Department of Psychiatry at Columbia University, Irving Medical Center in New York. And then uh, Dr. Seligman's independent uh, researcher from Jerusalem, Israel. Now, they used European and U.S. sources of data. The U.S. sources of data are the U.S. Census Bureau and data on death resolved on a monthly basis. So we know who died in the United States on a monthly basis. And uh, they studied the relationship to vaccination. And they knew the vaccination rates month after month in the United States. And um, I want to read to you some of the uh, conclusions. Uh, and that is that vaccination correlated negatively with mortality 6 to 20 weeks post-injection, while vaccination predicted all-cause mortality 0 to 5 weeks post-injection in almost all age groups with all age-related temporal pattern consistent with the U.S. vaccine rollout. The uh, results from the fitted regression slopes showed a, um, a negative effect. That is, we kept vaccinating. Mortality rates uh, kept going up after adjusting for other factors across age groups. And uh, the estimates are that there are 146 to 187 vaccine-associated U.S. deaths between February and August of 20. 21, that uh, this is incredibly alarming. These data are much higher than the Vaccine Reverse Event Reporting System, which is voluntarily reported. Uh, they conclude that the VAERS deaths are underreported by a factor of 20, consistent with known VAERS underreporting under ascertainment bias. Uh, and then finally, uh, they conclude that the risks of COVID vaccines and boosters outweigh the benefits in children young adults and older adults with low occupational risk or previous coronavirus exposure. Our findings raise fundamental questions about current COVID-19 
mass vaccination strategies and warrant further investigation and review. So uh, what we're seeing is a, a theme here from uh, multiple sources uh, that we're in trouble on the COVID-19 mass vaccination program in terms of excess mortality. It's not just my opinion. It's come in from all over. And here's yet another example from Columbia University investigators. So as I mentioned on the back half of the show, I have a wonderful program with uh, one of the scientists, a physician scientist who was involved uh, in the early development of the COVID-19 um, messenger RNA vac vaccines, remember those are Pfizer and Moderna that he was working with that are on lipid nanoparticles. The lipid nanoparticles contain messenger RNA that have synthetic three prime and five prime analog caps. Uh, I've published with Dr. Tony Karagakoulos, who's been on this program, the nature of these th three prime and five prime synthetic nucle nucleoside analog caps, which basically work to keep the messenger RNA from being broken down and allow it to have a longer lifespan within the body. And uh, we now know that this messenger RNA is taken up into the cytosol, the rough endoplasmic reticulum of cells, and then it starts producing large quantities of the spike protein that uh, move from the cytosol onto the cell surface. They cause inflammation to the cells that have taken up the messenger RNA, and then they free float uh, in the bloodstream. That was demonstrated in a paper by Ogata and colleagues from Harvard, and uh, this can occur up to at least 30 days after messenger RNA vaccination. The spike protein then uh, is well known to cause damage to organs, uh, cause damage uh, blood vessel cells, endothelial cells, and cause blood clotting. So all of this is cohesive with the pattern of non-fatal and fatal events that we see after COVID-19 um, mass vaccination with messenger RNA vaccines. Now the lipid nanoparticles are known to distribute uh, widely through the body. Uh, because they're lipophilic, they go into the brain, uh, the heart, uh, the adrenal glands, the human ovaries, the bone marrow, a um, biodistribution study done by Pfizer for the Japanese regulatory authorities showed that the messenger RNA vaccine lipid nanoparticle vehicle does hyperconcentrate in the ovaries as it tends to wash out of other organs. So this has created great concern over the possibility of uh, influencing uh, the hormonal function of the ovaries, the cycling of menses, uh, as well as the production of eggs and potentially uh, fertility if given in repeated doses. So there's great concerns that the vaccines as they move into boosters and there's repeated exposure to uh, serial injections of uh, lipid nanoparticles, messenger RNA, and then serial uh, explosive production of the spike protein, that we will come to a point where the human ovaries become uh, infertile because of these repeated bouts of destructive forces that are in the human body after each injection of uh, a vac vaccine product. Now, um, I can also tell you that there are, is research uh, clearly uh, developing that the polyethylene glycol uh, uh, used to help preserve the messenger RNA vaccines is itself uh, allergenic. About 75% of us have been exposed to polyethylene glycol, and it can uh, trip off uh, allergic reactions. Uh, Dr. Al Johnson uh, in Dallas, who is a general internist but a specialist on allergies, has actually developed a polyethylene glycol test to actually see how sensitive someone is to this, and this is in 
uh, clinical practice right now. He's an innovator and somebody who I'd like to have on the program in the future since he's done so much uh, brilliant work. Uh, but we, we do know from the published uh, literature as well that there is a high prevalence of hypersensitivity to polyethylene glycol. Uh, and those of you listening to this that have PEG allergy uh, should take this into consideration since we know both Pfizer and Moderna, Moderna rely on PEG. Johnson & Johnson vaccines, which are adenoviral vaccines, as well as AstraZeneca, they rely on something called polysorbate 80 that can also be immunogenic or allergenic in individuals. Recently, our US FDA uh, downplayed the uh, use of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine because of diminished efficacy. That was shortly a month or so after it had advised a second shot of Johnson & Johnson. But for the first time, our regulatory agencies have now favored Pfizer and Moderna. I personally don't think that's a wrong decision. Uh, Johnson & Johnson has always uh, had a worse performance than Moderna or Pfizer. And then among Moderna and Pfizer, Moderna has always had the best performance in terms of protection against COVID-19 illness, hospitalization, and death because Moderna's 100 micrograms of messenger RNA per injection and Pfizer's only 30 micrograms of messenger RNA. All this has led to basically a standoff between those who don't want to take the vaccines or don't now don't want to take boosters because they've realized how dangerous it is and then other forces uh, that are working uh, to uh, basically get a needle in every, in every arm at all costs uh, down to uh, national uh, lockdowns, mandates, punitive things, and it just keeps going and going. Uh, there seems to be no end to the thirst to get a needle in every arm. So keep a watch for these public programs. I am up for a public program with a former White House cabinet member, Dr. Ben Carson. This will be in Phoenix, Arizona. January 7th, 8th, and 9th. Uh, that's uh, my next big event. I'm going to do everything I can to stay active in the media for as long as I can, uh, including this broadcast, because I think it's so important for you, the listener, for you to be discerning and you should be presented with data uh, and then you make the decision. It's not information. It's not misinformation. It's simply you making a decision regarding what your conclusions are. You make your own inferences. That's the scientific process. It's called inferential thinking. Remember, science is a process. It's a, a systematic study of uh, nature uh, where we uh, ultimately come up with conclusions in order to carry forward. Science cannot be represented by a single person. And in the last few months, we've heard the uh, National uh, Institute of Allergy and Immunology uh, director basically uh, state that he is science and that if anybody uh, criticizes him, in fact, they're criticizing or attacking science, uh, that type of demagoguery uh, should be checked by Americans. They should understand that that's something going wrong. I didn't put those words in his mouth. No one else did. He's the one who said that anybody who comes before the American people and basically states he is assuming uh, the position of representing uh, something as large and as important as the systematic study of science, uh, that individual uh, should be uh, viewed uh, in a very, very circumspect uh, type of mode. Uh, many believe, honestly, it's time uh, to go ahead and have that person uh, be removed from office. And uh, he doesn't really have an office. He simply can be reassigned back to doing allergy, immunology, infectious disease research in his division at the NIH. Uh, and then have us install a team of qualified doctors 
uh, to fairly bring America out of the pandemic and out of the crisis uh, that the mass vaccination program has really brought on us. Uh, the good news is it looks like the Omicron variant is uh, creating a relatively large ecological niche. It, uh, it perhaps may be uh, specifically uh, having a predilection for the vaccinated. We've seen that now in a report out of Denmark, as well as the CDC, that uh, the majority getting Omicron are in fact fully vaccinated. But fortunately, it's a milder syndrome. We'll never know if it's mild because uh, of the uh, effect of the vaccines uh, taking an edge off the virulence of the expression of disease or whether or not this variant uh, is in fact just simply a more mutated uh, milder variant as the spike protein becomes more mutated. It's conceivable that it just causes less damage in the human body. Whatever the answer is, we're heading into the holidays. This is a joyous time. Uh, we're making great progress. I want everybody on the show to uh, lift their heads up, understand that doctors uh, like myself and many others have been working night and day to try to improve things for the country, uh, trying to bring each patient through the crisis one by one, and then collectively bring our nation through this crisis and bring it to a close. We can, if we all band together, vaccinated, unvaccinated, bring our country uh, uh, ultimately back to a state of normalcy and bring us out of this mass formation, uh, psychosis that's driven by fear. Uh, last book I should mention is by Dr. Mark McDonald. Uh, the book is called The United States of Fear, How We Fell into a Mass Psychosis. I have my copy in my uh, briefcase as I will get on a plane for the final time and get home in time for the holidays. I plan to look at it and read it carefully. So let's get real. Let's get loud on America Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report. I want to put in a quick word and a solid word for healthy cell. Healthy Cell uh, is a product line of uh, gel-packed uh, multi-source vitamins and supplements that are targeted, I think, particularly to help patients recovering from COVID-19. That's my most frequent recommendation to patients in that application. The long COVID syndrome has a variety of neurologic as well as neuromuscular effects on the body. And as I revealed today on the McCullough Report, we now know the virus is in the body for a long period of time, uh, even up to 230 days after initial infection. So we need everything that Healthy Cell has to offer. Three products that I have in my house are the Immune Super Boost product uh, used to boost the immune system. We need it as we're fighting off COVID-19 over a long period of time. Uh, the Focus and Memory product particularly helping with brain fog and that frustrating uh, set of neurologic and actually psychiatric sometimes symptoms that develop after COVID-19. We get so frustrated with that brain fog and that fuzziness. Um, as we know now, the virus is in the brain. And then lastly, the REM sleep supplement, which uh, restores the healthy sleep quality that no other supplement does. You know, many other uh, sleeping medications and supplements simply force people into sleep, what's called was shortening the sleep latency. That's the variable in a sleep study. This healthy cell is completely different. It actually improves the sleep quality. And the concept here is that when sleep, sleep quality improves, one gets a more restful night of sleep, the next day is better. So therefore there's better 
uh, opportunity to exercise and have a healthier diet. There's fewer stress hormones. And then the next night of sleep, again with healthy cell REM sleep supplement taken on a consistent basis, is another quality night of sleep. And then that uh, very favorable pattern sets in in the human body. One of the things I tell patients is on vitamins and supplements, use them daily and use them consistently. They're not start-stop uh, types of products. We use them daily and use them consistently and then expect over several months, you'll start to see changes in your body. And with this product line, I can tell you, you'll like what you feel. So let's get real, let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report. Because of COVID-19, many Americans worry about their health four times a day. That's 112 times per month. But by simply keeping our immune system strong, we can stay healthy and put our worries at ease. One little known way to do this is by taking AC11, a patented supplement from a plant in the Amazon rainforest. Studied for over 20 years, and backed by over 40 scientific peer-reviewed studies, taking AC11 has been proven to extend the life of immune cells called leukocytes, allowing you to boost immunity naturally. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order of AC11. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L, and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. Just imagine spending Christmas in a spaceship. Astronaut James Irwin says the Earth reminded us of a Christmas tree ornament hanging in the blackness of space as we got farther and farther away. It diminished in size. Finally, it shrank to the size of a marble, the most beautiful marble you can imagine. From all of us here at America Out Loud, may the warmth of the season embrace you and yours. Merry Christmas, my fellow Americans. America Out Loud Talk Radio, liberty and justice for all. Let's get real, let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report, and I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. It's my great pleasure to welcome to the show for the first time, Dr. Robert Malone. Dr. Malone received his bachelor's degree from the University of California at Davis, went on to medical school at Northwestern University School of Medicine, Chicago, one of the top medical schools in the United States. He returned to the University of California at Davis uh, and did his internship uh, there and residency training uh, started in pathology, quickly moved on to become faculty assistant professor in pathology. He subsequently c- completed a, a fellowship uh, in global uh, clinical uh, research at Harvard University has had prestigious uh, appointments in the Salk Institute uh, and some of the really esteemed work groups in uh, vaccinology and uh, virology in the world. Uh, he's participated greatly in the development of uh, the messenger RNA vaccines, which are you know worldwide now the lead in COVID-19 vaccination. And I've brought him onto the show. We can have a focused discussion on Omicron uh, the most recent variant that's come up in the news cycle. Dr. Malone, welcome to the McCullough Report. Hi, Peter. Thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure any chance I get to, to talk to you and learn from you. Well, help our listeners understand what is Omicron and why is it uh, now in the news cycle uh, to the extent it is? 
So that's a good question. Uh, Omicron, it's hard to track down exactly when it first emerged. Uh, there's various ways of doing that that include looking at phylogenetic trees that suggest that it's been around for a couple of years, maybe more. Uh, personally, I think that's an artifact of how those things are calculated. It's another variant. It was first reported out of the very good uh, molecular virology groups and immunology groups in South Africa that have been built there over decades because of HIV disease, but uh, really was first reported in South Africa and Botswana in detected in four fully vaccinated uh, um, uh, diplomats that were traveling. Uh, and so presumably they got picked up when they came on the airplane. And uh, the, the uh, source of those, uh, what countries they came from, has not really been revealed. It was not disclosed by the uh, leadership at Botswana. Rumors include, they vary from, at least one of them was from China to all four of them were from Europe, unclear. Uh, clearly this thing has been in the population for more than just a month. Uh, it, it is highly, highly infectious. It replicates at higher levels than does even Delta. Um, and it's associated with 46 high prevalence mutations, 23 of which are in the uh, region of the S protein that's associated with the antibody binding surface. Um, and uh, it's basically, it does, whether or not it was selected by the vaccinated or it emerged for some other reason is a subject of a lot of discussion right now. There's a lot of hypotheses for how come Omicron suddenly showed up, but it certainly is uh, rapidly displacing Delta in South Africa, increasingly in the UK, um, and in a variety of, of social settings. Uh, Ontario recently reported in Canada. Um, what's unusual about it is not only that it is so, so infectious, and it probably has a uh, replication coefficient, that's fancy epidemiology talk uh, for how infectious it is, that is right in the range of measles. And, and Peter, as a uh, trained epidemiologist, will tell you that once measles gets out into a population that's susceptible to it, it'll just rip through it, no matter whether you use masks or not. Um, the current estimates for r naught are in the kind of the seven to 10 range, that's sky high. The original variant was more like maybe two. So the um, data that uh, has emerged in some of these countries, particularly Denmark, there's a December 13th report where it looked like proportionally there was even a greater proportion of Omicron in the fully uh, vaccinated compared to the other variants. Do you think this is going to hold true? Meaning uh, could Omicron in a sense almost do a little bit better in a vaccinated person than an unvaccinated person? So Peter has just hit the nail right on the head, as he usually does. He's referring to a publication called Epidemiologic Characterization of the First 785 SARS-CoV-2 Omicron Variant Cases in Denmark during December of 2021. And this shows that 76% uh, of those were fully or booster vaccinated, 14% not vaccinated of the infected with Omicron. It turns out that Denmark as some of the best tracking and sequencing uh, capabilities in the Western world. Um, 
The good news is the hospitalization was only 1.2% and only 0.3% in intensive care with zero deaths. So let's hope that holds. But there are multiple lines of data, as you're mentioning, Peter, that are, are I, I call it ghost in the machine right now because there's so many confounding variables. We have to be really careful uh, about using words like vaccine-enhanced disease or antibody-dependent enhancement. But it's kind of looking on the edges like um, there's an unusually large bias towards uh, infection with Delta in the previously vaccinated, including the boosted populations. Now, right now in the news cycle, there's a whole wave actually of U.S. senators and other lawmakers uh, who have either tested positive or they're clinically have COVID-19. The same thing among the athletes, uh, the NHL, uh, the NFL. Uh, is it possible that we're already starting to see Omicron, in a sense, have that measles-like transmission? I think that's highly likely. And as you pointed out, uh, again, appropriately, the uh, data that is being used uh, nationally, for instance, it was just in the Wall Street Journal, coming out of the CDC, where they're claiming it's already 70-plus percent penetration in the U.S. population, that's modeling data. That's not actual testing data. The actual testing data is behind. And we got to remember that the CDC has a long, rich history now over the last two years of tripping over their shoelaces in any of this kind of uh, monitoring data. Um, there's also a group in the UK, in, uh, Imperial College, that's claiming that, uh, that the, the hospitals are going to be full in the UK with Omicron. But that is a group that has historically, let's say gently, uh, overrepresented the threat of uh, the various prior SARS-CoV-2 infections. There seems to be a, some sort of a bias in their modeling towards uh, um, threatening or sensational results. So we don't know yet, uh, but you're right. It, it certainly, the, 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 what the CDC is saying suggests that. But then I hear from Peter Corey that up in his neck of the woods in, in the Northeast, he's seeing a lot of very difficult to treat infections. And, and I think he may be um, dealing with the tail end of Delta, which you know very well is, uh, is a rough haul for anybody when they get it, whether they're vaccinated or not. I concur with that. In fact, I just today, I have multiple patients I'm managing a husband, wife, the wife has a, a prosthetic heart valve. She's had a thoracotomy. Uh, she very remote. I tried to get uh, monoclonal antibodies. She could not get them. We ultimately used a sequence multi-drug approach uh, for drugs and combinations. Rough. She got through it. Her husband was not so lucky. Uh, he had diabetes, obesity, uh, and now he's, I think we counted, he's 45 days into it and he's near mechanical ventilation in a hospital in East Texas. And, and that is basically the storyline of these hospitalizations. It's usually people older, and they are very far along in the process. Almost every time I get contacted, I'll say, what day of illness is it? And it's never day one and two and three, never. It's always way out there now with Delta. Delta is a prolonged illness. I, I don't think uh, Delta had the explosiveness as, as the original uh, Wuhan wild type uh, that hit Milan, and then uh, even we had a, a long duration of al uh, of alpha. It's, it's those seem to be more front loaded, more explosive. Things would happen, and we'd get through it. Delta is hard and long as an illness. 
And, and to your point, Peter, um, we have to always remember when we're talking epidemiology and incidence of disease versus incidence of infection, that what the CDC is talking about is infection events. Um, so those are our initial cases. And clinical, the clinical trend, as you're talking about, may be uh, it's often at least two weeks. It may be a month or more. And so the hospitalization and what physicians like you and, and Pierre are dealing with as hospitalists is lagging the incidence of the disease in the population by weeks to a month or more. And so I think there's a chance that what even, let's give the CDC the benefit of the doubt and say that Delta is rapidly, dis, I'm sorry, Omicron is rapidly displacing Delta in the U.S. population. We're still going to be seeing in the hospitalized population um, the lagging tail of the Delta wave um, uh, for quite a while. And uh, I think currently, even with the projections, what we're looking at is a mixed uh, population of, of Omicron and Delta concurrently at the moment, with probably Delta predominating in the hospitals. So when we hear this chatter about what's happening in the hospitals, and uh, the press have a, has a tendency to kind of overinterpret or jump the gun or, or recite um, the narrative that supports their their uh, lead position that's often about scaring people, what they're going to be talking about now for the next few weeks is still going to be predominantly Delta, I think, in the hospitalized population. Over. Yeah, that's a good point because uh, already people are thinking Omicron's moving in. Then they hear comments about the hospital. They automatically think it's Omicron in the hospital. But uh, didn't you imply that, in fact, that's just the opposite in South Africa right now, that, uh, in fact, Omicron is... is uh, the predominance of Omicron is resulting in lesser hosp lesser hospitalization rates in South Africa. Precisely. Here, I'd like to read from the British Medical Journal um, uh, from this month, just recently out, peer-reviewed. COVID-19, COVID-19, runny nose, headache, and fatigue are commonest symptoms of Omicron, early data showed. So for the College of London, the data for the top five symptoms, runny nose, headache, fatigue, sneezing, and sore throat. Notice what you didn't hear. Um, is you didn't hear uh, the you know chronic respiratory, you didn't hear the loss of taste and smell, some of the other more severe symptoms that we've seen, for instance, with Delta. Um, so that's that's an interesting one. Then we have uh, the South African data from the largest private health insurer, again from BMJ, Omicron title, Omicron is causing more infections but fewer hospital admissions than Delta South African data show, peer-reviewed BMJ. Um, more than 90% of newly sequenced infections in South Africa now evolve, involve Omicron as it's displaced Delta. But uh, it, it is, it, these are their own words. Data from South Africa's largest private health insurers suggests that Omicron is spreading faster than any previous coronavirus variant. And here's the kicker, showing signs of immune escape with both vaccinated and previously infect, infected people more at risk than in previous waves. This thing is cutting straight through prior immunity. Um, the good news is that this, you know, I really try hard to look for the, the silver lining here, and I think there is some silver lining. I really think we need to be uh, a little resistant to all the fear mongering that's happening in the press. 
Hong Kong University has pushed out some very interesting new data showing that Omicron can infect faster and better than Delta in human bronchus, but with less severe infection in lung. Now, for those of us that are influenza vaccine and, and uh, virology hands, this sounds an awful lot like the difference between the high path H1N1 and the regular H1N1 that isn't so high path in that the high pathogenicity H5N9 and H1N1 infect deep lung and the less severe forms infect bronchus and upper airway. And I think there's a possibility that what has happened is that Omicron receptor utilization has somehow shifted. I don't know, I'm not saying it's not still ACE2 and TMPRSS, but it could be that there's subtle differences in glycosylation, et cetera, that are resulting in a shift um, in, the, in the infection targeting up to upper airway. And if that was the case, then what we might expect is an evolutionary burst to adapt to that new tissue target. And that could account for this rapid accumulation of uh, mutations that wouldn't follow the normal timeline for mutation progression and would screw up the projections from the uh, um, uh, curves, uh, the, the um, phylogenetic trees that people use, and uh, give a false indication this had been in the population for a longer period of time, because they assume that evolution happens at a regular rate. And in fact, when a pathogen or anything jumps to a new ecosystem, a new environment or niche, it'll suddenly have a burst of evolution as it fills that niche, as it adapts for it. And I think there's a possibility that that might be what's happening. So that uh, what you're implying is that, in a sense, in many ways, it's almost a whole new illness. Uh, nicely put. Um, I am on record in two prior podcasts saying, um, you know, kind of giving a morning in America version of this. I don't want to sound like a Pollyanna, um, but um, there, there is a scenario wherein uh, this acts more like a, an infectious, live attenuated mucosal vaccine. Okay. Now help us understand, uh, at what point in time would uh, the uh, experts say that a virus now is SARS-CoV-3? What would be enough to kind of... <laughs> I don't know. Uh, that's up to the WHO, right? The genius is there. Um, this whole nomenclature, I don't know if you recall when the nomenclature came down, but there was a lot of uh, grumbling about the awkwardness of this definition. I, I don't know what to say about that, Peter. I, I think that we're going to be stuck with this uh, unwieldy SARS-CoV-2 acronym uh, for a while. Um, uh, and, and they're just going to be talking about maybe when they get to the end of the Greek alphabet. I have no idea. That's, that's more science politics than it is science. But it looks like the principles that um, our early treatment approach, where there are so many different targets, right, from, uh, from, mono, from nutraceuticals and supplements, what we do for uh, nasal virucidal types of uh, washes and treatments of pavidone iodine, betadine, the monoclonal antibodies, nutraceuticals and supplements, oral antivirals, uh, corticosteroids, uh, the other anti-inflammatories, antithrombotics. It, it sounds like no matter what, even if we did have a patient that slipped through a progression of illness, 
uh, we have so much there. I'd be hopeful that now that there should be a few hospitalizations and deaths provided we uh, are alerted to patients quickly. That I, I concur that this looks an awful lot like good news. Um, and to your point, I know you've been a, an advocate and, and champion of the nasolavage uh, approach. If this is shifted more to nasopharynx and upper bronchus, um, that might become more potent. Now, the, on the downside, many of the monoclonals are looking like they may be less potent, and some of them may need to be dropped from the roster. Uh, so uh, that is something that I think clinicians need to be carefully attuned to is the latest data. If, if you are one who administers uh, monoclonal cocktails, um, you are going to want to be pretty careful. This is a good reason to actually test and determine which variant your patient is, is experiencing because if you do administer monoclonals, you're gonna to have to make sure that they're matched to Delta versus Omicron because there's gonna be a shift in their efficacy. Um, in terms of the other things, I think we're still back with the same basic pathogen and the same basic pathogenesis, genesis, but hopefully um, with uh, reduced severity, reduced risk of hospitalization. It could be that we don't need, as for instance, as much uh, steroid uh, support if we're not going to be in deep lung. That's speculation on my part. Maybe that we don't need such a heavy emphasis on the antithrombotics as well. It may just be much more of a treating of a, of a head cold and, and potentially uh, nasopharyngitis bronchitis. Yes, yeah, switching more to uh, good old acetyl salicylic acid um, uh, might be in that portfolio, but uh, for a frontline physician, I think that's a they, they may want to um, walk carefully on that one uh, and follow your D-dimers, as you, I'm sure, recommend. And I tell you, I just had a patient today, uh, a woman about my age, uh, went to the hospital two times as she was progressively getting sick with COVID-19, was sent home two times uh, with no treatment. The third time is admitted with hypoxemia. Uh, receives inpatient care, which is uh, largely steroids and anticoagulants. And then uh, sure enough, the Doppler show multiple um, deep venous thrombosis and multiple pulmonary emboli. Now she's home on oxygen, on oral anticoagulants. And the whole part of the consultation is how long do we go with the anticoagulants now? And it makes me wonder, um, you know, if we let the disease go this far and she has such a prolonged a uh, period of viral replication, so much s systemic exposure to the spike protein ends up with this terrible, basically thromboembolic syndrome, which you know I think ultimately will resolve with anticoagulation. But hopefully with the new variant, we, we just won't get into these scenarios. But like you say, we'll have to be cautious and each patient will, in a sense, will be learning from. Well, I, I, I'm reminded of the saying, from your lips to God's ears. Okay, well, listen, we'll let that be the last word. It's been a true honor to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Peter. Bye-bye. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the Report.